Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hey, quick note before we start the show, I am still in the midst of this tour. On Saturday night, I will be in Montreal and shows after that in Hamilton, in London, Ontario, and in Kingston. Go to canadalandshow.com slash book tour. I'm signing books after every show. I'm having an incredible time meeting some of you. Come enjoy the show and say hello afterwards. I'll see you there. Ryan McMahon. Jesse. We're in Winnipeg. In the Fort Gary. The haunted Fort Gary. Is it haunted? Did you sleep well? I was haunted by Keanu Reeves. I came in to check in and I walked into Keanu Reeves' shot. They were filming here. Way to go. That's nice to record with you in person here in Winnipeg. It's nice to be here. I think today we're just going to talk about this whole appropriation prize thing. It's a big topic and you would think that after a weekend like this it would go away, but it keeps expanding and it keeps going. There's much to say. Good, good. And I'm really glad to talk with you about it. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Robert French, Philip Jua, Cheryl Summers, Anna and Joel Coop, Alex Dodd, Mark Pavlidis, and Anson Chapel. I just met that guy. Anson, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I'm impressed with the way the producers and Jesse seek out what's at the root of why Canada's news stories are presented the way they are. As a follower of the news, that's not something I'd really thought of before hearing this show. And Ryan, this episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Amnesty International Canada. Whether it is documenting human rights abuses abroad, campaigning for the rights of Indigenous people in Canada, or mobilizing thousands of supporters to free political prisoners, Amnesty International has been a leading voice for the protection of human rights for over 50 years. 
And happy to have them as a sponsor lately. We told you about their efforts in Chechnya, where there is just this incredibly disturbing, alarming crackdown on gay people in Chechnya, who are in camps. Amnesty is doing something about that. Amnesty is working in Syria. Amnesty has an incredible program in Canada, where I think that they are mobilizing people's empathy in an interesting way through their book club, where people are having book clubs anyhow, or they're doing that on their own or with their friends. Amnesty is suggesting books that you might read that tie into things you can actually do. So when you read The Handmaid's Tale and the issues that that book presents seem important to you, there is an action suggested and you can actually do something. So go to amnesty.ca slash CanadaLand, find out about all of this and take action, get involved. This is a group that is very much worth your time and effort. This episode is also brought to you by Casper. Ryan, I've been sleeping on a lot of different mattresses as I've been on the road, and I miss my Casper mattress. I, too, live much of uh, the year on the road, and once in a while, I'll get in a hotel room and think, oh, this is how good life can be. So for you to find that in Casper <laughs> is pretty outstanding. It's been a real high-low thing. Like, the publisher has paid for some of my hotel rooms, and I've been like, okay, I've been on some nice mattresses. I've been on some other kinds of mattresses, too. I like my Casper best, and I want to be back home in my bed. They make an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price that combines supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep service with just the right sink and just the right bounce. They have received over 20,000 reviews, and their average is 4.8 stars. So that is why this is the Internet's favorite mattress. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. That is how this works. It is the one perfect mattress. They ship it to you in a box. How did they get it into that small box? You try it for 100 nights for free. If you don't like it, they come, they pack it up, they take it away, they refund you everything. My friends, it is designed, developed, and assembled in the United States of America. Here is where a good thing gets better for listeners of this podcast. Their very cheap prices are even $50 lower when you buy a mattress at casper.com slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you, Casper. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what 
Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. article in this tiny publication with just 1,200 subscribers has stirred up a huge controversy. The column suggests Canadian literature is bland because white authors are afraid of cultural appropriation. This week, writer Hal Needs-Vecchi touched off a pretty combustible debate over cultural appropriation in this country. The word cultural appropriation, especially to Indigenous people, essentially describes their history. I mean, they've had their land taken away, their language, uh, their culture. Uh, They still face discrimination in a lot of ways. So appropriation for them is a far larger and more damaging notion stunned by the reaction uh, and what has come out of it. If anything, this proves our strength as a community and our endurance. And don't mistake my um, emotion here or my civility anywhere as weakness. This is our strength. This is me being in touch with my ancestors and feeling them sitting beside me. I hope to never do this again, Matt. Thank you. Okay, so Ryan, I think that some people are going to think that we're like beating a dead horse here. This, oh, it's a tempest in a teapot because this involves, nobody even knew about Wright Magazine. The Walrus is not a very popular magazine. It is a magazine that its controversies overshadow. It's actual, like more people read about the Walrus than read the Walrus. (laughs) And, you know, this has been kind of like a constant theme in the media since this, this came. But I don't think we're done. I know that... If people haven't heard Jesse Wente on Metro Morning, listen to that. If people haven't heard you and Hadia talk to Jesse Wente on Commons, people should listen to that. There are a lot of places I think people should go first. And we've been very glad and lucky to have Chelsea Vowell writing for us on the website. Janet Rogers writing for us about these appropriation awards. Sachi's written about this. Denise Balkasun. There are a lot of people who I think have seized upon what, what, what began as a little parlor game, shitty little media bubble. A lot of people have kind of seized from that shitty little hothouse uh, media conversation and derived from it larger important themes. And I think that this is a good thing. This is actually turning into a conversation that should have happened a long time ago. We'll continue that conversation today. I've been on the road and just a few tweets about this so far. So I've got a few things to say about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to sit down with you and talk about it. Thanks for for the chance to uh, to sit down. And, and with this story, it seems like the news cycle would move on, except now we're starting to hear from the likes of John Kay. Yesterday, I published something in Vice and a couple of different editors from a couple of publications that were indicted in this. Uh, have reached out to me to say, hey, can we explain, you know, what we're going to do? And I'm a nobody. So behind the scenes, I can assure you that the conversation is still going on. And I think for whatever reason, or for for multiple reasons, this conversation is going to be alive for a while. It's one of those things that uh, I think because of the weight of the conversation, we have to get it right. And we should be willing to continue the conversation until uh, we feel comfortable. Okay, so with apologies to people who've heard this little fracas summarized a hundred times, here is my best attempt at a nutshell. 
Hal Nidvietsky, who was the editor of Write, the Writers Union magazine. Before that, Hal, you know, he wrote a bunch of novels and he also wrote, uh, he edited rather for years, Broken Pencil, which was sort of Canada's answer to Fact Sheet 5, a magazine about zines, about the underground press. Uh, a guy who, you know, had legitimately has spent a lot of his life seeking out different uh, small voices and marginalized voices and editing and bringing them to, to a bigger audience. Uh, that's that's Hal's background, for absolutely. He wrote a very unfortunate editorial. He started by saying, I don't believe in cultural appropriation. His, o- his opening line. His opening line was to dismiss the existence, like it's a figment. I don't believe in it. And then he kind of went on to redefine it in a way that he could dismiss. So... After saying, I don't believe in it, he said, well, here's what it is. It's this idea that writers shouldn't write about other cultures. Well, we should. And he did this in a a special publication featuring indigenous writers, which the equity board and some indigenous writers in the union fought for. So he knew where this editorial was going, and he specifically wrote it for that issue featuring indigenous writers. I mean, that's, I think, the most sort of damning part is that here he is in his role as an editor trying to present, you know, like, like, let's take a break from a regularly scheduled programming and bring you some indigenous voices. And he undercuts it by saying he doesn't believe believe uh, that cultural appropriation even exists, and then defines it in this very narrowly defined thing that it's just a thing about writers using their imaginations or not, or the people who would have them not use their imaginations. Cultural appropriation is a much larger reality than that for a lot of reasons that I think people have doing have been doing an incredible job educating and uh, and defining since this came out. So Hal has completely apologized. He, he quit that job, and I believe that quitting that job was the right choice because I don't think his position is tenable anymore. I don't think you can be an editor anymore after you have undermined your own writers and after you have kind of scorched the earth for anybody who might want to pitch to you anymore. So there was no mob calling for his dismissal. There was obviously conflict and pushback from his own board, justifiably so, and he made the right choice and quit and has apologized completely. Then what happened is that Ken White who is the former editor-in-chief of the National Post, the former head of publishing at Rogers, uh, and and has just left his job at Rogers and is sort of getting crankier uh, and more kind of opinionated and outspoken as he is less connected to any institution. He went on to Twitter, and uh, he's a very respected guy. He's on a special committee for the Canadian Heritage Fund, which is very important because uh, the special committee and the area... Uh, his area of expertise is digital publishing, digital media, the internet in Canada. Yeah. So it's a pretty major chair that he's sitting in. Yeah, he still occupies a powerful spot. Uh, I think that perhaps his most powerful position is just that he is sort of this granddaddy figure to a lot of the uh, National Post affiliated Maclean's. He used to edit Maclean's and he took them into the, a bit more of a, a sensationally tabloidy and, and, and right leaning direction. And, uh, and hilariously, his last name is White. And his last name is White. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in full disclosure, he has supported this show before, and uh, I've, I've had a coffee with, with him, and he's promised to come on this show, which we, we never seem to be able to actually book, but I hope he'll still do it. Anyhow, people really like Ken White within his circle, and they respect him, and he played kind of like boss bully. Like, he he, he was, to, to see somebody of that stature say, like, this is bullshit, basically, uh, that that uh, this guy, Hal, who I'm sure he's never read anything that Hal Nedvietsky or Wright Magazine, but suddenly he's really offended on, on behalf of, of Hal Nedvietsky. And uh, let's actually do this appropriation prize thing. That's what Hal argued for facetiously in the editorial is like, in fact, appropriation is a great idea and we should have an appropriation award. And then Ken White said, let's actually do it. Who's in? And then 
it was just shameful to see Anne-Marie Owens, who is the current editor-in-chief of the National Post, not only took up this challenge, like, yeah, I'm in, but was like, hey, Barbara Kay, hey, Christy Blatchford, hey, all of my my freedom-loving, multicultural, cosmopolitan, white people of the media, who is in? Allison Uncles of McLean's, uh, Stephen Mache, uh, who's an executive at Rogers Publishing. So these are, I think we can say, some of the most powerful people in Canada. I don't want to overstate, you know, McLean's, like these are all organizations and institutions that are in decline, but we don't have many bigger figures than that. That's the list, right? If you're running the national, if you're editing McLean's, if you're the editor in chief of the national post, you have more say in what we talk about in this country, in what arguments get presented, in what arguments don't get presented than anyone else. I'm not saying that they have absolute, thank God, uh, you know, and there's lots of other things challenging their positions, but they do have more than just about anybody else. And it's it's generally where uh, many Canadians turn to for their information, for their news, for their opinion. And uh, to, you know, disconnect these figureheads from in their professional roles from their opinions on Twitter is is ludicrous. I mean, it's just absolutely insane to me that you would say, well, no, they can still do a good job editorially yeah. inside of their spaces. But the, these tweets, you know, are, were just tweets. It was a glib. This was, this was, these were glib late night jokes. What do you think about that? Because they, they, they soon, with some exceptions that we'll point out, they all, they all apologized. And most of them, Anne-Marie Owens, Steve Lauderanti, Allison Uncles, just basically said, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and then they disappeared. So do you accept those apologies? And do you feel like they can continue? Can they kind of get past this as just a, an unfortunate late night joke? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I don't accept their apology. Um, I think what will be the great uh, determiner, it will be if, if, the indigenous community broadly accepts the apology and you know the writers involved in this and this is this is sort of lost in the conversation of course where are are the emerging indigenous writers that were published in right and and hoped to have been published in right or admired members of the union admired can lit uh, from a distance as as students or as as i say emerging writers i think it's most interesting in the conversation to ask if if they will be forgiving these people because potentially these are the people they're going to pitch. These are the people that they're going to try to sit at tables with to have their own ideas heard. And in this country, under the call for reconciliation, in the 94 calls to action, action items 84 through 86 were directed at the Canadian media, you know, to, to, to to require the Canadian media to carefully consider their role in a pathway forward here. And um, this, this highlights to me that, should the apology be accepted, we're still talking about change. Like we're still talking about systemic change. I tweeted out, you know, why is there not a columnist at the Globe and Mail, an indigenous columnist at the Globe and Mail? Should the paper of record in this country not have a monthly, at least a monthly indigenous perspective? When I freelanced there, uh, I've published one piece with the Globe and Mail. Denise Balkasun was uh, the person that invited me uh, to to share that uh, column. But I, I kind of asked those questions behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, people like Denise and, and other people from diverse communities inside of these legacy organizations are treading very lightly, too. You know, so while Denise is publicly 
supporting this conversation and saying, yeah, no, we need to do better. And she's tweeted out, you know, Indian and Cowboys website and and, uh, Rick Harp's media indigenous website, clearly pro-indigenous in this conversation. So she still needs to protect her job. Yeah. Right. And so we're in a time where an apology from these people might be accepted by a few. But uh, as Jesse Wentes pointed out uh, very eloquently, it's apologies. It's time for the apologies to end and for the change to happen. And and uh, what that change looks like is um, is still up in the air. First of all, these apologies were not that everybody had like a crisis of conscience and, and individually came to their senses and apologized. Can you tell a little bit about why all of these very powerful senior media people decided to apologize? Well, there were there were people like uh, Red Indian Girl on Twitter, Terry Montour, who uh, I like to call my my uh, my Indian auntie on Twitter. She's one of those one of those people that uh, I think most everyone I know admires and she holds people to account. She, she holds your feet to the fire and she's, she's done this in, in this story. She's done this with Boyden. She's done this with me. I mean, she, she, she's very fair in, in, in who she wants to uh, ensure gets the message of, you know, what the hell went wrong here. And so, you know, she publicly said to Steve Lateranche, you need to talk to me. And he uh-huh. went, he went, Okay. Uh-huh. And then he said he sent the email, uh, his email address to her. This is an example of somebody saying, you will not just tweet your apology. You need to face us. Look, at our best, if we are going to talk about a pathway forward in this country, at the end of the day, we need to be in the same room. We need to be at the same table. We need to have a, a, a what I wrote for Vice was we need a common language to speak. It seems like in this country right now, we have so many different ideas of the truth about Canada that we are speaking different languages. We are coming with, with broadly different, very different understandings yeah. of, of what has gone on here and what is going on here. Yes, this was an example, I think, of people just having two completely separate conversations. And, and, and in a sense, the debate, there's all this confusion. And Andrew Quinn's like, well, what are we debating even? Is a debate about who gets to define the parameters of the debate. And I, I'll try to make more sense of that in a minute. I, I, I still feel like, you know, like the, I want to uh, get specific about why this was such a problem. I, I think there's still people out there. I had a friend of mine who I think is a pretty thoughtful guy, but he's not part of this media world. And he's like, what's, what's with this whole cultural appropriation thing? It seems like a bunch of bullying to me. And I, I, I was like, that's interesting. And I, and I wrote back and said, well, who's bullying who? Who's the bully? And I don't think he'd stopped yet to think, I assume that the direction he was going in was there is like a politically correct mob that is bullying people. But when you actually consider who, like had anyone in the media heard of Red Indian Girl on Twitter? It's just some anonymous person on Twitter who is demanding accountability from the most powerful arbiters, gatekeepers of opinions and ideas in this country. So is that a mob? Is that, is that, it's like, oh, you got us all terrified that we're going to look racist or is it simply the application of just a reasoned and ethical argument and a demand, you know? So the apologies were pathetic, I thought. The apologies were, I'm sorry, John Key was like, well, I didn't offer any money, but I, I should have said something sooner. Or it, it was glib. Uh, I shouldn't have just stood by. We heard this from everybody where like, they really did sound like prep school kids who'd played a mean prank on the scholarship kit. We're lucky that the offense happened on Twitter because I feel like the offense happens every day yeah. In boardrooms, at bars, at dinner tables. But it was on Twitter and there's a record, you We're know. Very lucky. And that. then the, you know, all of the 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 gleeful tweets of this pylon campaign, and then these just these little apology tweets. The only person who 
actually took time to explain why they were sorry was Stephen Mach, executive at Rogers. And I'll read a few of what he said, uh, a few of his tweets from his apology. What's become clear to me is that cultural appropriation isn't a simple issue of free expression and defending unpopular ideas. The issue is that we have a lot of journalism and art that has badly distorted our understanding of minority communities with real harm. Those minority communities are now beginning to raise their voices and say, enough, and we ought to listen closely. It's embarrassing to admit that I am really only grasping the importance of this now at age 42, but there it is. So here's a guy who's, who, who I feel like that is uh, a forthright and, and reasoned apology where he's saying, look, I thought this was a free expression issue. I thought this was people saying, you can't write about this, you can't write about that. And through this process, I've learned what it actually is. And, and the context here, uh, everybody who joined in wants to argue this in an acontextual way. Like we do live in a country where the foremost writer about things indigenous, the only writer whose book you can get at the airport, the most celebrated, most paid writer is Joseph Boyden, who fabricated aspects of his supposed indigenous lineage and who plagiarized. That is the main indigenous voice. We're in a country where most of the stuff that is written in fiction and nonfiction about indigenous people is written by and for white people. Like, so like, to say in that context, cultural appropriation doesn't exist is risable. Yeah. And Th- that's what's going on. And um, I know we said it off the top, but but I'll say it again. For those that haven't listened to Commons uh, with Jesse Wente, please, please go back and listen because he breaks it down, you know, over a 30-minute interview. So I'll do it here in, in two minutes. The reason why cultural appropriation becomes such a major issue for indigenous people is that this country was founded on it, that our cultural items, ceremonies, songs, ways of life have been appropriated from us. They've been taken from us and put into boxes, museums, banned by law, taken and erased from our own uh, land. And so when it comes to representations today, whether it's through video games or short fiction or, or, or whatever, the, the free expression argument is, is trying to support, we connect in, in very concrete, solid ways to our actual real lives. Cultural appropriation can be connected to the violence we experience. You know, we are being misrepresented through story and in, in tired cliches, stereotypes, or half truths. I don't understand how people can't see that that forms your opinion of a whole group of people. That if we are accepting the Cleveland Indian logo and mascot with the big nose and the smiling, dumb chief Wahoo. I don't understand how people can't see how that influences the psychology of a society to think, ah, it's just those Indians. These are very real things in our lives, you know, that we understand uh, deeply. The second thing I want to say very quickly is that the, the free expression or the censorship issue there is no one in this country that better understands censorship than indigenous people. Yeah. We can go to the potlatch ban. We can go to, we can point to hundreds of different ways that indigenous people have been censored. The potlatch ban when the culture itself was, w- was, was censored. Ta- like censored. by the state. By the state. Not by red Indian girl on Twitter saying, hey, don't say that. Right. But by the state. Right. And uh, pipes, uh, birch bark scrolls, drums, 
sacred bundles were burned you I th- know, yeah, I in think, this country not that long ago. No, I, I think that a lot of people file cultural appropriation under the category of like, oh, this is something that's not that important. It's like a politically correct, it's sort of like academic speak, it's a microaggression. Why don't you worry about something real? There are real problems in your communities, you Indigenous Canadians. Why are you so upset about logos? And I feel this frustration of people who are making the same argument again and again to, to an unfeeling audience of like, it is the macroaggression. I kind of get that from a distance of like, it's almost like the like the final act of dominance is that after you think you've defeated somebody and conquered them completely, you paint your face like them and you tell their story. It's, it's the last thing people have left is their story and to tell their story. And, and so many of these emerging writers um, over the last week or so have said that. They're, they say, what else do you want from us? Yeah. What else can we give you? Like we have to give you our understanding of the world too. Like the only thing we have is, is if we're sitting in shackles literally or, or figuratively, the only thing left is our imagination and the only thing left is our context. And you want that too. Like you just feel entitled to that too. And and there are, there are two spirit writers, non-binary queer writers from indigenous communities that literally don't have anything that the weight of colonialism on them is so great that they are not safe in our community inside the circle in indigenous communities that their poetry their short stories the zine they make with their own two hands is their only hope and so if we're going to give that away too then I connect it to, and it may sound dramatic but we're also giving away the lives of indigenous people in this country today, which would you prefer? Would you prefer the voice of someone with context, with a lived experience, imagining or reimagining a world through that indigenous worldview? Or would you rather someone who thinks they know something about indigenous life or people or history, write based on a thing they think they know, which is more rewarding for the reader? I mean, to me, it's a no brainer. No one is saying non-Indigenous people can't write Indigenous stories or characters or narratives. Please do. The more stories, the better. Yeah. 100%. But that doesn't mean that there won't be reaction. And I think it's a fair assumption that no matter what you write, at any time, at any place, people will react. Okay, that's a really interesting point. And and I was talking about that, and uh, Sachi was talking about that, saying, what is the censorship? Nobody is saying that white writers can't have indigenous characters or even write from the perspective of an indigenous person, but that is going to be subjected to a certain kind of scrutiny. And like, you need to be aware of what you're doing when you do that. Is that reasonable? So that, so, so Andrew Coyne said, oh, I guess we're all agreed then. Uh, because I agree that you got to do it well. So I agree with Sachi and I guess there's no debate except some people do think that white people shouldn't be doing this. And then he kind of cherry picks the story that uh, Janet Rogers wrote on Canada Land. And he coined has this uh, aha, where he says, no, there are some people who are trying to censor. There are some people who are demanding. And he quotes Janet Rogers where she says, don't write about me. Write about your relationship to indigenous issues, communities, and experience. Don't write as if you are me. I'm here. I can write my own stories. So to Coyne's binary thinking, like, obviously there are people who are trying to impinge on my freedom. Because, of course, Andrew Coyne is such a great writer of literary... Best, uh, best-selling author. It's amazing, these people, none of whom are writers of creative fiction, none of who suddenly them. seem very, very upset about... But okay, let's deal with this. So he says to, to Coyne, this is proof that there is a debate here. There are people who want to take away his, his freedom of expression. And I want to respond to that a, a little bit, because 
there is a difference that we must delineate between censorship, like you're not allowed to write about that, and what's going on here. And you think about a phrase like, a woman's place is in the home. There's no censorship against that phrase. I can say that, you can say that. But if you go around society saying that at this point in history, there will be repercussions for you. If you are at work and you say, I think a woman's place is in the home, you're going to lose your fucking job. Yeah. Can say it. You can. You're not going to go to jail. Yeah. But, uh, and some people would say, well, it amounts to the same thing. It's censorship. To which I say, fucking A right. This is a, a, a social phenomenon whereby we agree to standards. And at a certain point, I don't care if you agree. You might still think a woman's place is in the home, but you better shut the fuck up. And, and, the, and, and we got there because there are women who put their asses on the line and who absorbed a lot of hate and hostility in saying that first and making nuisances of themselves. And uh, I'm sure people said that they were impinging on their rights to express themselves. That is what's happening here. So Janet Rogers does not have the power of the state to censor Andrew Coyne. When she says, don't write about me, she is exerting a demand for just decency and her, she's asserting her humanity. Mm-hmm. You can ignore her, but absolutely what is happening here is that indigenous voices, it seems to me, are trying to, through voices that are marginalized and they're using Twitter because they do not have access to the Globe Mail and other places, they're trying to assert a new standard and I think a pretty necessary one. And, you know, should we as a society not aim to evolve and to get better and to just make this country, the town you live in, uh, your families or yourself just better? Like, is that is that what we're fighting about? I want to bring it back to Janet. Janet is someone I know very well and, and uh, have a lot of respect and love for. What she's saying is, look, I'm a Mohawk woman, former poet laureate of, of Victoria, BC, who has fought like hell to publish five books a few spoken word albums, who is still forced to walk with her elbows up inside of Canlit at every festival she goes to. And she's saying, look, my voice is unique enough and powerful enough by my fucking book. Yeah. Like, am I not valued as a Mohawk woman to say, I've got five books that you can buy right now to learn about me? right? To learn about my experience as a Mohawk woman here living in Canada. And so, so that, that's, where, that's where I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, you're not going to get a lot of argument out of me on this point, but I think that to reiterate that this is why Indigenous voices can and should be centered today is that there are books, there are writers, there, there are dozens, dozens of published, Indigenous published writers that Canadians have the opportunity to hear from. We aren't in the 1940s where there aren't books being published by Indigenous people. Yeah, but you asked a second ago, like a lot of my interest in these issues is it comes from right where you were pointing out a second ago, which is wouldn't you rather wouldn't you rather hear it from people who know what the fuck they're talking about? Right. My interest in these issues is that I'm I'm curious, and it's not that I have any history or background in in issues of, of fighting for the rights of people who are marginalized. That's not I'm not an activist, and I don't I haven't put in the work. Right. I'm just curious because I'm I'm bored of these white guys. I'm bored of people. I know my experience. I've seen my experience reflected back at me so many times. Every little minute iteration 
of the coming of age story or the the buddies, the, the, you know, like, uh, palling around and playing crazy pranks or like the serial killer. It's like every single version of what a white guy can do with his life. I've seen played it a thousand times yeah. and I'm just curious about other people. So I'm uh, that's what I'm interested in. OK, but 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 I do feel like to answer your question, of like what would people rather the market? would rather Joseph Boyden write those stories. 100%. The market wants him. This is my challenge to to Canadians, is why are we more comfortable hearing uh, Boyden or hearing Gord Downey tell the story of Chani Wenjak when in 1970, Willie Dunn wrote the song, the song about Chani Wenjak yeah. in 1970. Why is it, and why didn't Gord Downey take the chance to center Willie Dunn's voice? At any point, he could have said, you know what? Well, yeah, we're doing this project. And by the way, an exceptional project. And, and the secret path and all of that, much respect to everyone working on that. However, there's a missed opportunity to center Willie Dunn's voice, right? A Mi'kmaq singer, songwriter who 40 years ago wrote the song about this boy. Um, so why is it that Canadians are more comfortable hearing certain voices centered and not others? And I think that points to it points to the truth the, the, the there's a there's a real colonialism problem here there's yeah. a there's a problem that we need to continue hammering on it's a problem that won't go away it's a problem that is embedded in the roots of the media in this country it's embedded in the roots of the politics in this country it's embedded in the way your city or town was founded and we just need to talk about it and we, we and and who's talking about it who's been talking about it for decades indigenous writers. So this conversation isn't new. It's new to a lot of people that are listening to this podcast. It's new to some people that just turned on the radio this weekend and heard the shitstorm. But this is something we are experts in. We're yeah. well versed. No, in it's this idea that this just popped up. Look, there's a negotiation here that I think is a good thing. Like you have been hosting your own show for six years, right? You have built up an audience You and you're speaking to a lot of people, both inside and outside of your community. I think that trying to kind of uh, bridge a, a relationship to a different audience through 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 Commons and our collaboration together. People are open and they want to hear more about this, but it, it is this thing of like, well, what is that weird indigenous book from some small press that has a weird cover and it's not, like, Boyden knows how to make the, to appeal to certain sensibilities. Mm -hmm. He knows how to wrap it up. He knows what, where, when to set it because he knows his white reader, yeah. you know? And- uh, Why, 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 how? How does he know them so well? <laughs> you know, like, um, very, yeah, all good points. And the weird title with the weird cover in a different language can be the celebration of this country. Yeah. yeah. Can and should be the celebration of this country so that when the media paints us as the other, well, let's get specific about who the other is. They're Haudenosaunee, they're Anishinaabe, they're Shimshan, they're Mi'kmaq, they're, they're Dene. You know, let's get specific about that and let's celebrate those stories very specifically. I said this as a throwaway joke when I was on The Current, but uh, up in Dene Day, I told uh, some elders and some people that I'm very close with up there that I was writing a book of short stories and it was comedy and it's coming out in 2018. Oh, amazing. That's not even a plug. I was this part of the story. And they said, well, that's really cool. And how are you doing it? I said, well, I'm kind of collecting my experiences as I travel. And they said, oh, and they warned me. They said, well, uh, you know Farley Mowat? And I said, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I know Farley Mowat. And they said, you know what we call him up here? And I said, what's that? And he said, hardly know it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, boy. <laughs> you know, it's funny, 
but also it really is poignant. Like Farley yeah. Moat, very well celebrated author, of course. And but I think a, a really, really major point is being made there by the Dene people to say, no, you can't helicopter in and then and then come and speak for us. That that there are Dene writers that do that brilliantly and eloquently. So let's be careful about who we push to the top. And Farley Mowat, Joseph Boyden, these are these are the examples. I think that it would be a mistake for people to see what's happening now as a demand for silo. That's not what's happening. I think that it, it, the 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 effect of this that that is redemptive and positive is that it's it's the breaking down of that, and that we are through this. I think able to stop talking past each other. But there is sort of like a new standard has to be set, and it's not about off with the heads, but it is about like enough of this shit. And so when I read Ken White, because there are some who haven't apologized, and Andrew Coyne hasn't apologized, and Ken White hasn't apologized, and it's interesting that those who haven't apologized are the people who, ha- who feel that they have no institutional responsibilities, which, you know, it lends this suggestion that, that the others are just apologizing because they're being forced to. So Ken White, he, he's got a, 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 you know, an op-ed in the National Post because we had to hear more about this from Ken White. He describes what happened by saying, apart from the part about not believing in cultural appropriation... I found no fault in Nidvietsky's sentiment of encouraging cultural exploration. So it's amazing to me how quickly he, it's like, apart from that part where you dismiss the entire existence of cultural appropriation in an issue dedicated to indigenous writing, everything else was cool. How do you have any conversation apart from that? That is the the definition of, uh, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? What I read in that is a rigorous assertion that it doesn't mean, Kenneth White is telling everybody who's upset about this, what you think cultural appropriation means doesn't matter. What I say it is, how I define it, and how Halnid Vietsky defined it, that's what matters. I feel like this is about nothing but power. It, it is uh, solely about power at the end of the day, and, and that's what appropriation is. It, I get to take from you whether you fucking like it or not. It is my place. It is my duty. It is my job, which is why we connected back to land and Canada 150 and the Indian Act and all of the rest. It's like for indigenous people, yeah, it's fucking personal. So it's it's that mentality that they all acted under. Mm -hmm. It is cowardly what they did. It is they it's it's bullying what they did to tell us that our voice doesn't matter. This has been a live conversation for a long time in Indian country. And it's it's intersected with the mainstream through sports and uh, the headdress conversation. This is a live conversation. So they damn well knew that. So it's they're bullying by saying, we're going to openly mock you. We're going to openly mock you. These are people who have given lip service to trying to increase diversity in their miserably monocultural institutions. And these are people who are running failing media organizations with government money. Okay. McLean's takes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from the government. The walrus applies for every grant. They're deeply embedded with liberal government. They are absolutely, they're a charity for God's sakes. The national post, I don't believe is taking any government money. They, They have their hands wide out. They are demanding huge subsidies from the government right now. These are the captains. And then fucking Steve Lauderante of the CBC, which is positioning itself as first and foremost in trying to do reconciliation through media. These people are taking government money and have made a public commitment to doing a better job of indigenous representation. And they're all mumbling their apologies. 
And the diversity in the rooms is, is important. What happened for those that didn't follow it uh, when Vicky uh, Mochama did that work for Canada Land, looking at, let's get the numbers from these people around the diversity. What happened there for, for listeners or, or readers that didn't catch it? They refused to give th- that information. Refused outright. And yeah. then tried to publish, many of them tried to publish their own numbers and, and release their own data. Like this is, this is real and, and this is live. And, and, you know, if we don't expect better, from the media in this country, I don't see how a pathway forward in this country is even possible. I think we tend to overconflate the numbers on the reconciliation train. We overconflate the numbers on the Canada 150 train. We have to be very careful that this movement that some of us are participating in on a day-to-day basis, uh, through our work, through our volunteer efforts, through through new spaces that we're trying to open up. These are small numbers of people. Yeah, there's there, there's a, a sense of consensus that, that is not reflected in reality. And uh, we're, we're this isn't a shortcut. I mean, this is we're doing a, a very long take on this one topic. And there's probably some people who think, my God, I've heard nothing but for the past week. I don't think you've heard nearly enough. I think this is a watershed moment. And I, I already see a couple things happening that are going to replay themselves. I already see how insignificant this is is going to be to some people and how manipulated it already has become. John Kay quit his job at the Walrus. This was instantly reported as a direct result with this appropriation awards controversy and his role within it. And even when the language was a little bit more careful, uh, the Globe and Mail, their headline was, Jonathan Kay resigns as editor of The Walrus amid cultural appropriation controversy. And if you look at his messages now, he is saying things to the effect of, I'm finally able to, to speak my mind now. I was forced to censor myself before. And so he has positioned himself as a victim of encroachments upon, I'm a writer, and now I get to really write now that I don't have this role. It is absolute horseshit. John Kay was on the way out of the walrus for months and months and months. It's been a dumpster fire. It's been completely racked with scandal. There have been stories stolen from writers that he's apologized for and recognized. There has been an erosion of, of the walrus's identity. And like, like they're, they're publishing uh, Sue Ann Levy and Barbara Kay in what was supposed to be a progressive magazine. It, the quality of it, I think, has definitely gone down. And now there's already this effort to kind of say that, oh, John Kay made the walrus super interesting. He was in constant conflict with Shelley Ambrose. We published an email she sent him where she said, we're in meltdown mode. There's no love lost between them. He is essentially... Uh, I think very skillfully both reflected that and he said in his comments, oh, I didn't get along with my boss. Oh, there were lots of problems. Everybody don't blame this all on the appropriation awards, but he could have easily waited a couple of weeks before quitting. He could have easily put some space between this particular controversy and his departure, but he didn't. And as a result, instead of people asking a lot of questions about the absolute disaster of a tenure he had there, he is now a victim of the appropriation awards controversy. So there's already some spin at work here. And so to the idea that this is, you know, being worked over ad nauseum, I saw Jesse Wente and his frustration and his grief. And I see the difference in stakes between this glib assertion of Andrew Coyne of literary freedoms that he'll never use because he's not a creative writer versus people who are struggling to assert their humanity to people who don't want to listen. And I thought, like, when I saw Jesse Wente say, I, I don't want to have this conversation again, I thought, Jesus Christ, who's paying him for this labor? You know, this is work. Yeah. This is work to, like, come and assert, like, to have to explain to people that cultural appropriation does, in fact, exist, and it does hurt. 
And to know that you're probably going to be asked because there's like four indigenous people on the media Rolodex that he's going to be asked to come do that again in the next controversy six months from now. And then to have other people say, oh, look at you exploiting this platform to, for your own fame. Like I, there is no joy taken. I can't imagine. Well, and, and the, the, the question that needs to be asked now is, is, is what happens next, right? I, I said on The Current that maybe people shouldn't be losing their jobs, that maybe if we're serious about changing these institutions, that we have to take that, that long, slow burn, that we, we work with the people that are willing to, to do the work. There's a real impact on you, and you told me that this was something that, that changed things for you before we started recording today, that this, this is a catalyzing thing for you. What, what, what did you mean? When you're right, you don't have to be fearful. I don't fear Ken White. I don't care whether Rogers Media ever gives me a sitcom. Yeah. I don't care if I never have a column for the Globe and Mail. I have no fear because I'm right. Because we didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Because while we're having this conversation in the media, we're still in our communities fighting for our lives. And so this is a small pittance of my energy, really. And I don't have fear. And for those of us that, that do stand up, I'm in it for the fight. I'm in it to fight. I'm in it to make space. I have a strong heart. I know the truth. And I feel like those that are loudest on the other side have no idea what the truth is. And in fact, probably because of the media they've consumed through their lives, ironically, it's created this idea of what indigenous people are today. And I hope that when all is said and done, 30 years from now, we're in a different place where our voices and our stories are honored and accepted in a a different way. Well, that was not a Canada Shortcuts, but Ryan, thank you. I'm sorry we ruined your show this week. Yeah, well, you should be. <laughs> Email me. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. And Ryan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at rmcomedy. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, Please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.